Uh, if you hadn't noticed, it's the 29th of December, yes? Uh, it's the end of a year, and it's, if, I reckon if I went back and looked at my sermon history, and I have sermons going back to 1996, I think I started preaching regularly. Uh, so if I go back and look at my New Year's kind of sermons, it probably always starts the same kind of way. Because the end of the year is a time to look back, but it's also a time uh, to look forward. We reflect on the year and it was great that Mike led us in prayer to thank God for many of his blessings, but also to bring before him uh, maybe some of the things that we actually need to ask his forgiveness for. Uh, But as you think about uh, next year, I guarantee you've all had some thoughts about what you want 2020 to look like. Maybe some of you are heading off into new endeavours. You're starting a new job. You're going to university. Maybe you're switching course. Uh, Maybe you've got new responsibilities that are coming on you. Maybe you're thinking in terms of uh, the education, the work kind of space. Uh, Maybe for parents, you're thinking about what the next step for those children are. For grandparents, the next step for those grandchildren. What are you planning Maybe you're thinking about relationships, about friendships, about more significant relationships that might be in different places by the end of next year. Maybe there's family changes. Maybe some of you, and I know this is true in my own family and in others, we're going to be saying goodbye as you move off to other things. 2020 will be a year of change. That has been true for 2019 and go back through history. Change is a natural part. I ask you now, if you could put number one achievement, this time next year, when you look back on 2020, what do you want to be able to say has characterised this year coming? I'm going to give you a minute. Uh, You can talk about that with the person next to you. You can just ponder it in your heart, maybe jot a few things down. You'll notice there's a totally detailed sermon outline with a heading and nothing else. There's room there to write. Uh, You've got a minute. Come back to me shortly. Okay. I want to make, uh, I want to try and persuade you that if this is not your number one, that you might bump whatever you've put there and put this one in place. Because you're all sort of uh, super spiritual Christian types, I'm sure you've got the same number one as I've got here. Uh, I would hope that you look back on 2020 as a year where you have grown significantly in your relationship with God. I would hope that that might be your number one. And if not, that I can persuade you that it might bump whatever valid and worthy thing that you have from that position of number one. And let me say, let that be if you are someone who is not a Christian, that you might come to know the grace that is ours in Christ. If you're someone who's starting out, that you might really get your feet under you. But if you who are maybe like me, you've been walking as a Christian for decades, that you can still look back and say, I know God better at the end of this year than I did at the start. Because images of growth are part and parcel of how the Bible speaks of the Christian life. It is absolutely essential. And they are images of biological growth. 
They're images of a growth that comes up from within and then manifests itself outwards. Jesus uses the image, doesn't he, of bearing fruit. Maybe another image that is very familiar is the image of Psalm 1. Let me read to you. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is the law of the Lord, who meditates on his Lord day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That sounds like a great image, doesn't it? The tree planted by Streams of water yielding fruit in season whose leaf does not wither. The drought comes, the hard times come, they still stand, they still bear fruit. That is an image, an image of growth in relationship with God. But can I say, you might look at Psalm 1 and say, okay, so Cameron, you're telling me I should grow in relationship with God because it kind of works. My life will be better. Yes, your life will be better. But that is not the number one reason. Why should you grow in relationship with God? Ultimately, because God is God. Augustine, one of my favourite sort of theological pin-up boys that are there. Um, I don't know if you have those favourite theologians. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, he was around about 1,600 years ago in North Africa. He had a brilliant understanding of the grace that is ours in Christ. And he says this, he says, You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We are actually designed for relationship with God. That is there. We are designed to be in resting in him. We sung of that this morning. We rest in you, abide with me. So brothers and sisters, visitors, I would love you to have as your number one priority that you might grow in your relationship that is yours through Christ with God. That's what our series over January is really about. This series of, uh, we've called it uh, Foundations for Growing in Grace, and today I've called this one Essentials. They're a little, little bit more topical than we normally do. Normally at Trinity Church Brighton, we work with the passage that's read and we unpack it. We're going to be jumping around a little bit more. Most of the, the passages you're going to need will appear on the screen, so you don't have to madly, you know, when I quote from Habakkuk 2, you don't have to think, oh no, what are they going to think, the person next to me, when I don't know where Habakkuk is in my Bible. Um, one of the, um, the pastors growing up in my church uh, when, I was, when I was a teenager, early 20s, he, the guy got up for a Bible reading and he said, uh, our reading this morning is from the book of Hezekiah, uh, chapter 27, verse, starting at verse 6, and you could see everyone... <laughs> um, very Christian in-joke, there is no book of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king, uh, but it kind of made everyone kind of, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> doesn't matter if you don't know where Habakkuk is. Most of us don't. There's a table of uh, contents at the front. I've got three points for you this morning. Uh, vision, insight, and wonder. So that'll tell you where we're going. Uh, you've had an eight-and-a-half-minute introduction, so yeah, we'll move a bit, a bit faster now. So uh, I might pray for us. Father, we do ask 
that this year would be a year where we grow in our relationship with you, where we might look back and see how much you have taught us of your wonder, of your majesty, of your power and holiness and the grace that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Vision. Now, this fellow, you may not know him, that's Socrates. And uh, if you are familiar with uh, Socrates' teaching, he was an ancient Greek philosopher. He's probably most famous for the little phrase, know yourself. If you're not familiar with Socrates, you've probably heard that. Know yourself. And this idea of self-knowledge is, uh, we understand it to be critical. If we don't really know who we are, we don't really know how life is meant to work. If we don't really know who we are, how do we actually live in line with our, uh, live authentic lives? That's a big buzzword of today. Uh, We need to be true to ourselves, but who is the self that we are true to? Socrates, I think, had the right idea. But can I say, this is the second question. What is the first question? Well, the first question is, who is God? John Calvin, uh, 16th century theologian, he said this. uh, Recognise he lived in the 16th century and used non-politically correct language. It is certain that man or woman, never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinise himself. Calvin is right. We need, if we are going to know ourselves and know ourselves truly, we first must have a vision of God's face. If we are to see ourselves accurately, we must first see him. It must go this way, because if we flip it round, things go wrong. The French philosopher Voltaire made a funny little quip at one point. He said this, he said, if God has made us in his image, that's the Bible's teaching, we have returned him the favour. We do that, don't we? If we start with ourselves, we make God just a little bit bigger than we are just a little bit smarter than we are, just a little bit better than we are. And so if we start with ourselves, God is like our slightly better big brother, maybe uncle, maybe father up there, who kind of has us covered, but we've actually brought him down to our level. And this has significant consequences because We're not inclined to worship someone who's just slightly better than we are. We're not inclined to trust someone who's just slightly smarter than we are. We're not inclined to obey someone who's just slightly holier than we are. When we work from ourselves to God, we actually make God so much smaller The Bible teaches us that God is a God, not just slightly stronger than we are, but he's a God of absolute power. And when I say absolute, there is nothing that the God of the Bible cannot do. 
We read in Genesis 1, a phrase that comes up again and again and again. And God said, let there be. And there was. Again and again and again, God creates by the power of his command. And he looks at it. And he says, and it was good. And it was very good. It was perfectly what he intended. Our God is a God of absolute power. Not just a little bit bigger than us, but mind-bogglingly bigger than us. It's like comparing the light of a little LED with the light of the sun. But God is infinitely powerful. So even that comparison doesn't work. Do we have a God that is that big, that is that strong? Do we have a God who is not only absolutely powerful, but absolutely in control? Because the God of the Bible is a God who controls all things, who works all things according to his purposes. We read this in Isaiah. This is the Lord speaking. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. That's an amazing statement. I make known the end from the beginning. Now, I don't know about you. Has anyone seen Star Wars yet? Okay, does anyone want to see Star Wars but hasn't seen Star Wars? Okay, there's a few. So I'm not going to give too many spoilers for you. Too many. No, I'm not going to give any. But imagine that you've walked into the cinema in 1977 and uh, you've walked out. Uh, actually, no, probably before you, the opening credits, you know, episode four, a galaxy far, far away, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you've actually scripted out the entire nine movie sequence. And uh, you posted it off to George Lucas and said, I'll have my share of the royalties, thank you. How could you know? For some of us, we still don't know how the story got to where it did. Um, you can work that out when you see it. But to know the end from before the beginning, but this is the God of history who says, I make known the end from the before the beginning, from the ancient of times, what is still to come. Here he's talking about God's, his, his deliverance of his people from slavery and exile in Babylon. But hundreds of years prior to Jesus being born, the prophet Isaiah spoke promises that were fulfilled in Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. God is a God of history. I say, he says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Some people like to have a God who kind of, he's very good at reacting. You know, something happens and, oh, he gets around that. Well, the Bible's God's not like that. He's just not able to react to what happens. Everything unfolds according to his plan and purpose. Is your God that big? That's awesome, isn't it? That is awesome. I had one moment in history. I've remembered this. It happened to me when I was about 15. I used to play a stupid game. 
with a friend of mine uh, where we used to guess the next song on the radio, okay? And, uh, and I just said, Don Henley, Boys of Summer. And then that classic kind of intro starts and it's like, it's only ever happened once, it was complete chance. But it stayed with me, the glory is with me. But this is the God who from before creation, Ephesians tells us, chose each one of his people to be his in Christ. This is the God before the atoms and molecules that made up your being, make up your being, even existed, knew your name, knew your life, determined your path through his history and your destiny. That is the God of the Bible. Absolute power, absolute control, and absolute purity. The Bible uses the language of holiness. Now, holiness is, it has two aspects. It has moral perfection, and it has an otherness, a separation. And God is both, and we read this, Helen read this for us, in 1 John 1. This is the message that John writes that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. He is absolute. Absolute purity. The light and the dark for the the apostle John, they have moral overtones. And he's telling us that God is absolute purity pure holiness and what happens when people encounter this you might remember Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6 the year that King Uzziah died the great king who'd kept Judah safe for many many years Isaiah goes to the temple and he sees a vision of God seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple And the seraphs are circling around him singing, holy, 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 as we did this morning. They probably sung it a little bit better than we did. No no offence, but I'm sure the heavenly choir has got one up on us. And do you remember Isaiah's reaction? He doesn't go, wow, I've seen God. He says, woe is me. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He sees the absolute holiness and perfection and power of God. And his reaction is, I'm stuffed. Woe is me. Was it just Isaiah? I think sometimes, um, and take this the right way. I think sometimes the fact that God became man, that Jesus Christ walked amongst us, it can do us a disservice because we do get the picture that Jesus is just a slightly better version of ourselves, don't we? But if you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you will see on a number of occasions the disciples and those around him see just a glimpse of who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is in his essence. Maybe you recall the time that Jesus goes fishing with uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew. Uh, They'd been fishing all night. They'd caught nothing. But 
they condescendingly, I think, agree to take Jesus fishing. Yes, the carpenter knows so much more about fishing than we do. And they catch so many fish that the nets are breaking and the boat is almost sinking. And Peter catches just a glimpse of the majesty of this person. And what does he say? Depart from me. Leave me. I am a sinful man. Maybe a little bit later, the disciples once again in the boat, the storm is raging. Jesus stands up with a word and says, be still. Do you remember the disciples' reaction? Who is this? It's not that they'd forgotten Jesus' name, that momentary amnesia. But all of a sudden, the Jesus that was, they thought they knew was expanded to someone who was so much bigger. I've just read through the end of John's Gospel, John's account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And when the soldiers come to arrest him in the garden, and he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I am he. They all fall before him. They all fall before him. Do we have a God that has that kind of reaction? We, we have that kind of reaction to. That we see just a glimpse of his holiness. And we realize just how perfect, just how powerful he is. You might know the story of Job, who had uh, some interesting discussions with God and made his case fairly forcefully about why, uh, why he hadn't done anything wrong and why should he be suffering in this way. And at the end of the book of Job, the Lord who Job has been calling to account turns up and takes Job to task. And this is Job's conclusion. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Calvin tells us that if we are to know ourselves, we must know God first. The Bible teaches that. Is this the reaction that we have? Do we realize just how powerful, just the incredible extent of his sovereign control, his absolute holiness. See, if I think if we had a glimpse of that, it would transform us and it, it must. Let's go on. As I said, if we see God's face, we will see ourselves truly. What does this tell us about ourselves? Well, the Bible teaches us in Genesis chapter 1 that we, men and women together, humanity as a whole, are created in the image of God. Now, what we've just talked about, about God, do we, do we see that? That we are created in the image of such a one as that. Do we see that? Does it make us say, 
Wow. C.S. Lewis wrote a little essay called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he says, the most uninteresting person you've ever met, and you can put a name to that, uh, that person, if you were to behold them as God sees them, would be a person of infinite glory or infinite horror, depending on their destiny. That you would be, you would be tempted to, to fall down before them and worship them. Do we see ourselves that the infinite privilege that we have been given, not to be God, but to be his representatives, to exercise power in his name? We read in Psalm 8, where the psalmist asks the question, what is human beings? What are men? What are women that you care about them, God? You have made them just a little lower than the angels and put everything under their feet. Do we see ourselves in the image of God? We not only reflect his power and control in our finite sense, we were also made to reflect his purity and holiness. And so as we see God and we see his light, we see our own darkness. As we see the perfect purposes, we see that we attempt to disfigure them. We see our rebellion against his sovereign rule. Do we see our sin? As we gaze upon God's holiness, our reaction should be as Isaiah's reaction, as Peter's reaction. God, you are too pure. We cannot stand. Against his light... We should see our darkness. I know some of us here like golf. And you probably think you're pretty good at golf, don't you? I'm, I'm hopeless at golf. I hate golf because I end up playing golf. Um, all my friends are walking down the fairway. They're meant to be walking down. I tend to play golf about two or three fairways to the right because I, I understand I drop my back shoulder and I slice really nicely. So whenever I tee off, I can hit reasonable distance, but I hit a long way that way where I'm actually meant to be hitting that way. But I know some of you actually think you're pretty good at the game. Well, imagine Tiger Woods invites you out uh, for a round. Are you feeling as comfortable? Or maybe let's change the topic. Are there any New Zealanders here this morning? Okay, New Zealand, the number two test side in the world... Well, they scraped together, I think, 168 yesterday, and it was really quite scary watching some of their batsmen face the Australian bowlers. You can think you're good until you're exposed to someone who is just that level above. Maybe you're good at tennis. And then Roger, you know, not Roger, the guy just around the corner, but Roger Federer rings you up and says, what about we have a hit? All of a sudden, you see yourself in that light. Take your pick. Maybe you're a muso, maybe you're an intellectual, and then Einstein rings up and says, oh, why don't we write a paper together? Get some perspective. When we see God for who he is, we actually see ourselves truly. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. 
As we see God in his power, his sovereignty, his holiness, we must see not only our worth, we are infinitely valuable, made in the image of God, but justly condemned, sinful. Our darkness is clearly displayed before his perfection. But I ask you, what part does repentance play in your life? Because often I think we can look at our sin and we look at it as the really bad stuff that we kind of cleared up a while ago. And now I've been living as a Christian. I'm actually pretty together, you know. I was converted before I went through my rebellious teenage phase, so I can actually say I've never been drunk. I've never even smoked a cigarette, (gasps) let alone smoking anything else. Like, I've never been unfaithful to my wife. I've never... The last time I think I was in some kind of violent altercation was in the school gymnasium when I was about 13, and I ended up with a black eye. Um, I'm, I'm fairly respectable, but... John tells me that if I claim I've I've not sinned, I'm making God to be a liar. So sin, I think, is much, much bigger than we think it is. I think we do this because we reduce God's law to a series of abstract commands rather than an expression of who he is. We reduce sin to action rather than motivation, but Jesus doesn't let us do that, does he? He tells us if we hate our brother, it's the same as we murdered him. If we lust after that person, it's the same as we went and had had an affair with them. We ignore the relational side of sin. We downplay the motivational aspect of sin and we reduce its offence because God really is not that holy to us. And so therefore, we don't see just how offensive our sin is. You know, sometimes... When people go on trial, uh, before they are sentenced, there are victim impact statements. You know this? Okay, where the victim of their crime is actually able to speak. What is God's victim impact statement against our sin? The sin that we don't think is really that bad. The sin that we don't think has much place in our life. God's victim impact statement statement is the crucifixion of his son that is what our sin means to him that is just how black it is against the purity of his holiness and that is what forgiveness cost as we see god we see ourselves we get vision of his face we get insight into ourselves And then we may wonder. The Bible speaks of fearing God. Now, I don't know if that's something that you think about. Do you fear God? Not in a runaway and terror aspect, but a regard that is this person is just so awesome. So incredible, so powerful, that if God willed for me no longer to exist in that moment, I would be gone. 
that if I beheld God face to face, as he said Moses, Moses wanted to see the face of the Lord. The Lord said, the moment you do that, you die. Let me put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you over with my hand and you might see my back as I pass by. That's the most that Moses could face. Do we have a healthy fear of the Lord? I ask you this because 2020 is a year where you're going to work out your priorities. You're going to work out what you want to achieve. You're going to work out what's worth spending time on. Now, are you going to make God, try to make God, fit your ends? Are you going to ask him to bless your plans? Are you going to fit him in when it's convenient? Or are you going to make seeking him number one? I spent some time in Malaysia on mission a number of years ago now, and we visited a little restaurant. And in the corner of the restaurant, there was a little altar. If you've been into lots of Chinese restaurants, you'll find they're not uncommon. And we, we asked about uh, the person on the altar. It was a fairly fierce-looking guy with a huge axe, uh, and they'd made offerings before him. And um, we said, oh, who is this guy? He turns out he was a fairly notorious rapist and murderer. Uh, but the, the, the mentality was, if we buy him off, he'll be for us. So if we make offerings of fruit and incense and so forth, this guy will use his power for us. Do we try and do that with God? God, I'll give you a bit if you get on board with my stuff. I'll fit you in. I'll read the Bible a bit. I might join a growth group or I might serve at church or I might even speak to my friends about Jesus. But I want you to get on board with blessing my plans, my purposes. Can I say, good luck with that because it's probably not going to work. No, it's definitely not going to work. Let me tell you that. But the amazing thing, if you read Psalm 27... David's under siege from armies, from accusers and all sorts of... What's, he, what's his number one priority? Here it is. Verse 8. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Brothers and sisters, will we seek his face? Not because it pays, although... Being in his family, being one of his people, is being blessed with the every riches in Christ. But because God is God. Will we not only see his holiness and see our sin, but also marvel and wonder at his grace? Will we not see that this God, he loved us so much that he gave us Christ, his perfect son, through whom he created all things, so that we might become his children, not because of our merit, but because of his grace and mercy, that Christ stood in our place. Will we make 2020 a year 
where we behold the face of God. Let me pray. Lord King David, he wrote that his heart says of you, seek his face. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, our hearts would encourage us, would exhort us, would beg us to seek your face. That your spirit would convict our wills, that we might say, Lord, your face we will seek. Forgive us where we have reduced you, where we have downplayed you, where we have domesticated you, where we have tried to play life by our rules and expected you to fit in. Lord, let us see your holiness. Let us see your power and your sovereign rule. Father, by your spirit, give us a healthy fear. But Father, also by your spirit, may we see the wonder of your grace that came to us, that met the offence of our sin and washed it clean, that paid the price for us to be reconciled sinners and rebels to the king of kings that ransomed us from sin and death and evil and brought us into the kingdom of light and life. Father, let this year, let this year be a year where we know you, where we see you and where we serve you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.